the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. So welcome everyone to uh, the latest edition of the Enter Sad Men podcast. And we are sad men today. Uh, the podcast being uploaded a couple of days after we lost the legendary Eddie Van Halen to a long battle with cancer. Um, a man who brought uh, joy to millions of people. Uh, normal service with the podcast will be resumed in a few minutes, but um, joined as always uh, by Stephen Richard uh, for this episode, and uh, came as a bit of a shock, didn't it, boys? Yeah, it, it absolutely did. Yeah, I mean, Richard, we talked about it on WhatsApp, and Richard, said, I didn't even know he was ill, and I, I have to confess, I, I didn't know how I was aware he had been ill before. Didn't know how ill he was. I mean, he was what was he, sixty five? Um, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just soul-destroyingly sad news you know it's um you know you, you, your memories go back to when you saw van halen don't they initially that's the first thing that happens you remember seeing them as you saw them and you know for me it was far far too long ago and of course then you're just thinking what well, heartbreaking that you'll never get the chance to see that man again and it's um that alone is it, it from a purely selfish perspective it's very sad but yeah the whole of rock is mourning the loss of eddie because he was by any measure, that overused word, he was a legend. No two ways about it. Yeah, it was unique, wasn't it? Absolutely unique. It's, yeah, I, I was completely surprised because he'd had cancer, I think, wasn't it about, I don't know, 10 or 20, 20 years ago. It was quite a while ago, wasn't it? And he, and he, he, got, he recovered. So it was a massive, massive surprise. Yeah, really sad, sad day. So there were lots of uh, rumours going around over the last couple of years, weren't there, about the fact he was ill and was he going to recover? And sometimes you see it, he'd, he'd pop up on social media and you'd think everything was all right. And then you know, you'd hear another rumour to the contrary. Our age, um, as Steve uh, has said, we, you know, we're going to see a lot more of our friends departing. So uh, we're not going to do this every time somebody goes, well, I think when it, when it gets to somebody like Eddie Van Halen, you kind of have to. So, but we don't want to get more Kish and Maudlin either. You know, um, here's a man who, who, as I say, brought huge joy to everybody. So I think, um, I think we need to remember the joy. So I think in our tribute to Eddie Van Halen, um, let us just quickly go through uh, favourite Eddie Van Halen moments. So my, I'll start with mine, which was the one and only time I saw the band live, which was in 1984 at Donington. They were second on the bill to to ACDC. And it was, uh, I think as I said on the website, Eddie Van Halen and Van Halen, I mean, Roth as well. Donington 84, in the sunshine, absolutely upstaging ACDC, on, in what was no more than a 45-minute set. And they just tore the stage up. And uh, Eddie Van Halen was on fire that day, an absolute joy to watch. And um, if you go and check it out on YouTube, you get some of the performances are, are on YouTube, and it's worth it's worth investing your time. He was sensational that day. So that's my favourite moment of Eddie Van Halen. You guys? Yeah, I was trying to think if I could remember sort of bumping into him in sort of TK Maxx in Southampton High Street, but I, I, I don't have an anecdote on that score but no i and i only saw van halen once and it's a crime and it's but it's the truth and that was 40 years ago on the um on the uh oh, the world invasion tour um finsbury park rainbow and and i, I regaled you with this story from earlier previous enter sandman and um uh I, i'd gone to see dave lee roth there's no two ways about it i'd gone to see the diamond i'd seen the the, the posters of 
you know, the great man in the red and white spandex doing the splits area and all that sort of stuff. And he was Baroque God. And I wanted to go and see and um, check out this extraordinary figure um, as part of this extraordinary band. Got there and obviously all eyes, my eyes were drawn to Diamond Day, but then also to this incredibly unassuming performer, stage left, um, with a guitar in his hand who suddenly came to life. And um, I'd never seen anything like that before in my life. And in all honesty, I've never really seen anything like that since. And um, that's the that's the real sadness that, that leaves me with such a kind of empty feeling inside me, that having seen him perform at his absolute peak and seen what a true genius and a professional he was, I never did again, and now I never will. And that's, you know, that's, that's desperately sad. Well, from, from my point of view, dropping the needle for the first time on that debut album and hearing those initial chords ring out. And there aren't many times when a particular a, a, a guitarist you've never heard before just absolutely blows you away. And you hear a guitar played like it's never been played before. My kids asked me this morning, was, was he the, the greatest? My, my daughter was mortified that... He was only on page three of the Times and not plastered all over the front page. I mean, it's always a difficult one. Who is the greatest guitarist? Uh, I don't know if I have a top of the pile, but of the of the few that I rate at the top, he's amongst them. Uh, absolutely unique in in what he did, how he played, what he brought. So I think, yeah. So my I'd pick that moment of hearing him for the first time on on running for the devil, running with the devil. Huge loss. Um, it's going to be rocking up there tonight, isn't it? Over the next few days, they're going to have a massive party. Um, let's uh, before we're going to talk some nonsense in a moment. Before we do that, let's just hear a little bit of Eddie Van Halen. Steve, what um, what would be a fitting tribute in terms of musically for a little snippet of anybody who hasn't heard Eddie Van Halen? What do they need to hear right now? Yeah, well, the, the obvious is eruption, isn't it? Ignore the obvious. Just ignore the obvious. I don't know. Stick on something like Top Jimmy or um, or Panama or just something slightly left field and um, whatever it is, if it's done by what we're effectively the greatest band in the world for five years, then just stick it on and let everyone remember what a genius the bloke was. <laughs>
So there we are, the legendary, irreplaceable Eddie Van Halen, who we lost a couple of days ago. Terribly sad uh, for rock fans and rock musicians, for the rock community around the world. Um, and he leaves us with a tremendous legacy of music, which will delight, entertain and bring joy to people for a very long time to come, I'm sure. Right, let's get on and talk about some nonsense. We are the Enter Sad Men podcast. Our job is to rate, review and rank every rock and metal album you should own and put it in order in a Hall of Fame. So that's the job that we've got. You can find us on Spotify. In fact, you can find us everywhere. Anywhere where you upload your podcast, we can find, uh, you can find us. Uh, so you can also uh, follow us on Twitter at EnterSadMan. Find us at EnterSadMan on uh, Facebook as well. And of course, we've got our own website, which you can find at EnterSadMan.co.uk. You're listening to the Enter Sad Men podcast. We're talking loud. So last week, of course, we, uh, we, we did. We answered the question on the questionnaire, didn't we? Motley, Maiden or Metallica. And um, that was a good, good episode, wasn't it? It was, and yeah, the, well, the answer score-wise was Motley in the end. Yeah, strangely, yeah. When we answered that question on the questionnaire, um, we probably weren't thinking Kill 'Em All, were we? Which was obviously the album that we ended up reviewing last week, along with Shout at the Devil from Motley and Peace of Mind from Iron Maiden. The job this week, we came up with the brilliant idea of naming the episode Sheer Art Attack. So what that meant was that we would choose albums that we bought solely on the basis of the artwork first. Steve, would you like to announce what your album was that you bought only on the strength of the artwork? The one I've chosen this week is Killing the Night by a band called Bad Steve. And I have chosen Blackfoot's 1979 album Strikes. Richard, when you were looking through your record collection, which was the album cover you loved most? I chose an album cover just in terms of great artwork the artist is a guy called mark wilkinson who did several album pieces of artwork for marillion and gone from marillion's second studio album which is food guys let's give you a quick sample of a few of the tracks that we've been listening to this week here they are
there's a quick dose of what you're getting and what we're going to be waffling on about in this episode. And our regular listeners will know that what we do is always listen to these albums and discuss them in chronological order. So we are starting with Mark's Choices back in the 70s with Blackfoot and their album Strikes in 1979. Mark, take us into it. Opening album sleeve notes. Okay. So 1979, I actually bought this album, I think, in 1982. It's actually not particularly remarkable, the album cover. It's a striking cobra. But Blackfoot were around, people were talking about the album. They had a a reputation for being absolutely blistering live. This was their breakthrough album in 1979, Strikes. The band members were Ricky Medlock, Charlie Hargret on guitar, Greg T. Walker on bass, keyboards and backing vocals, and Jackson Spires on drums, percussion and vocals. But of course, a southern rock band wouldn't be a southern rock band unless there was also a cast of thousands involved in it behind the scenes. And then we have the overall producer as well, who's a guy called Al Nally. Uh, so it's one of my still one of my favourite albums. How did you guys get on with it? Yeah, I loved it. Rich, did you get the same sense of enjoyment? Yes, I did. I, I mean, I'd heard, was it Marauder, when I was at, at uni. I mean, interestingly, artwork-wise, they had a few albums featuring animals on the front cover. So there's this one with a cobra, and then Tom Catting had a black panther, and then Marauder with, a, sort of, I think, an eagle. Right, let's listen to some Blackfoot, shall we? So the album kicks off with Road Fever, which sets out pretty much how they go on for the rest of the album, actually. It's, it's a typical kind of blues shuffle and a straight into a lead guitar break. I was kind of hooked right at the start when I bought this. Yeah, they brought hard rock to Southern Rock, didn't they? They brought metal to this party. It's punctuated all the way through this album. You know, they were, yeah, they were a Southern Rock, but they were they were a proper hard rock band when they wanted to be. Yes, there's plenty of Skinner in it, and they've taken Skinner and jacked it up big time. A few lines in, there's um, the line, it hits me right square smack in the face, which is what the song does, really. Great start. Ton of energy, brilliantly balanced. Great way to kick off an album. As I said, they, they had a reputation for being a very heavy kind of rock band and I think are widely recognised as being the heaviest of all of the kind of southern blues rock bands you know Molly Hatchet 38 Special Leonard Skinner and I listen to this and I find it really hard to believe or work out how it took them so long to get to this it moves from the sort of full-on frontal assault of road fever into I Got a Line on You which at this point having bought the album sight unseen i'm thinking i'm a genius i found a brilliant album that i didn't know about interestingly the next two marauder and tom Casson, weren't i don't think anywhere near as good as this one but i like i got a line on you it's just got a tremendous groove to it yeah love the backing vocals on this so one of three covers on the album isn't it and and the lead guitars are not typically southern are they leonard skinnard and 38 special and molly hatchet and the rest of them you listen to them and there is a certain sound to the guitar work on all of them and this is different yeah so the dual guitars uh, the dual lead guitars are, are playing at once i mean with stuff like skinnard and molly hatchet they tended to have a they'd have a battle and take it in turns whereas the sound on this album is a lot more layered so i got a line on you fades away and left turn at a red light is my favorite song on the album i would agree it wasn't when i first started listening to this but this song has grown and grown and grown on me with every listen really atmospheric built beautifully really like it's just beautifully it reeks of southern rock blues rock country it's just oozes smooth yeah it's got that box step shuffle in it which is just 
fantastic because that's what gives it its groove. When we were talking this last week about it being a, a summer album, and it is, and this this typifies it. This is cruising at night with the top down in midsummer. And as we go through and listen to this, if you can fade out the vocals and just listen to that box step, that is I ain't the one. It's exactly the same. And a great voice, by the way, Medlocks. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. He's a great singer. And we've said this, we've said this so many times that there are some vocalists who are just right for that band. He's absolutely made for. It's, it's a it's a really good fit. So we we kind of start off with three super strong tracks, and in my view, this is kind of where the the album takes a downshift. Anyway, before we get on to pay my dues, you've got my motley crew fitting into the strikes story. So. The record was produced by, as you know, Al Nally and Henry H. Bombway. So Nally was a former record shop owner, went on to form a label called Big Tree Records, signed Brownsville Station, for whom Weck played drums, and they, of course, wrote Smoking in the Boys' Room. I told it was tenuous. Ooh, there you go. <laughs> no, 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 that's there, yeah, top, top fact. So, uh... We are now on Pay My Dues. It's a good song, but it's a step down from what we've been listening to. Mm. Meaner than a rattlesnake, this bitch. I quite enjoy it. It's the second cover, isn't it? It's Blues Image, who I know nothing about. But yeah, I like it. It's a really good, solid blues rock song. It's not got the, the, the complexity and some of the mood of some of the other ones. The ending's strong. The, the last song on side one of the album is called Baby Blue. And again, I think it falls into the same category as Pay My Dues, really. I think it's... it's all, no, Steve, come on then. Come on, Steve. This is where we need to this is where we're gonna fall out. Because when you when you when you said after track three that you, you saw you saw a, a barren, a relatively barren patch coming up, I think this just grooves beautifully. It's not I mean, Rich mentioned the lack of complexity compared to some of the previous track, compared to Pay My Dues, compared to some of the earlier stuff. And you know what? Southern rock doesn't always need complexity. I just I just love this. I am moving. And I'm grooving as it goes. I think it's a brilliant song. Bands that came to mind, particularly the opening chord sequence and the, the melodies, I felt there were almost bit, bits of sort of free, certainly bad company in it. It's that much more straight ahead blues rock again in, in this one. And it's, yeah, it's nice and bouncy, isn't it? This one, you know. Baby Blue, though, uh, goes nicely into a song I don't know how many times I've heard this song covered, Wishing Well, most famously done by Free. But I think they do something different with it. I think they it's not a straight out-and-out out cover. So did, did you put that to the test? The covers that I've heard are this, Gary Moore, and obviously the free version. And this is my favourite of the three. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, you, you're wrong, but that's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love the free version. What Free did was phenomenal. And while I love Ricky Medlock's voice, Paul Rogers' voice is whoa, whoa, whoa. So so I played the Free version straight after this and before it, and, and I've been juggling the two. And there's bits and pieces that are different, but not enough for me to think this is an amazing cover. But it's a brilliant song and they've done it well. In the end, I think what we're agreed is it's a perfectly decent cover. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so it's gone on to uh, run and hide. This for me is, is the low point. It's a bit whiny. You're being really brutal about it. I don't feel the need to skip it when it comes on. But on that list of tracks, top to bottom, it would be at the bottom, not at the top. I'm just I'm not bothered about this at all. And I'm, I'm just slightly surprised given the album Splendour and also an album that's clipped along at a fair old lick that it throws up something quite this, I don't know, tepid. 
the one word I've written here is inoffensive. You can't get you know, particularly wound up about it. It's fine. So at this point, we usher in Shorty, don't we? Grandpappy Shorty. Yeah, who is Ricky Medlock's harmonica playing granddad. And he can blow a tune on a harmonica, this band. So if you ever want to know what a train sounds like played through a harmonica, this is the track to go to. He does an absolutely phenomenal job, I have to say. I presume it was his party piece. <laughs> and then they decided to build a song around it. I'm sure that's true. But I think Ricky Medlock, I mean, I think Shorty was a pretty talented musician because I think Ricky learned the guitar from Shorty Medlock. I think he so. did, he was a banjo player. Yeah. Do you want, yeah. Do you want my um, quirky and slightly uninteresting fact part two yeah. this is shorty it's been rumored that skinhead's ballad of curtis lowe from second helping was written about him how about that that is interesting because i remember when i listened to second helping certainly the ballad of curtis lowe was based on somebody i just can't remember who that was so you're probably right yeah, yeah. shorty actually wrote this song he didn't just do his party piece at the beginning well fair play to him it's worth it's worth a song can i just ask you to though to um to take your headphones off just for a moment and and have a listen to a cover version here's how not to do i know what's coming i think oh fuck off dolly i thought that's who it was the album that was off won a grammy what the the grass is blue yeah it won the 2001 grammy award for best bluegrass album so my second favourite track on the album, and this speaks to me in a way that Freebird never has and never will. What does it say to you? It says, I'm better than Freebird. And yet it's unashamedly evoking the spirit of Freebird, isn't it? Oh, yeah, completely. I think they just do it better. Yeah. There's none of the histrionics. I think it's a more honest song. Yeah. Freebird is more contrived. Can we call it a power southern rock ballad? I mean, it is, isn't it? You, you, well, you think of Freebird, don't you? And I was going through Spotify and tracks I might like and listening to the likes of Mississippi Queen by Mountain and um, Rambling Man by, I think it was the Allman Brothers Band. Um, oh, this is so, so up there in, in that company. And when you know the story as well, because it's not just that it sounds kind of like Freebird. It was written as a tribute to people who, of course, you know, post-plane crash, who Medlock would have known well and played with, presumably. So, uh, which makes it even more um, powerful. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful sign-off. Yeah, couldn't agree more. It also had echoes of Simple Man in terms of the, the guitar notes. But yeah, great way to sign off the album. And also, not musically, but in terms of structure, also puts me in mind of I Believe in You by Y&T. Yeah, it's that epic finale, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, of course, Y&T did do an epic finale. I don't know whether this was a, a Blackfoot signature or not, but, um, yeah, no, this is just beautiful. Really, really beautiful. And they get to the business end of it really quickly as well, which Freebird doesn't. Yeah, it's a couple of minutes shorter, isn't it? A couple of minutes shorter, and we get to the fast bit a bit quicker. Yeah, and you don't feel, okay, boys, we've had enough now, do you? No, you don't. That's right. Yeah. You think that generally about the album anyway, Mark, because it only lasts 33 minutes, and that's so album length when everything's as good as this. It leaves you hankering for more, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Uh, it does. Although when you, you then listen to Tom Catting and um, and Marauder, you, you do kind of think, well, do you know what? Maybe that was the best they had in them. Yeah. Marauder and Tom Catting aren't bad albums, but they're not a patch on this. The guitars play out Highway Song to bring Blackfoot's Strikes from 1979 to a close we will pack it away and then return to it later in the show and score 
each and every track and give the album an average score and see where that ends up in the Hall of Fame. But Mrs. Medlock and Co., that's them done. So uh, overall, shall we do uh, highs and lows? Yeah. As Freebird was my high on pronounced, so Highway Song is my favourite on this one. And the one that I'm really not bothered about at all was uh, was Run and Hide, which in no way tarnishes the album. It was it's it's been a really 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 enjoyable listen for me. The Pay My Dues, Wishing Well, Run and Hide are all not bad tracks, not weak tracks, but they don't stand up to the, the company of the rest. And for me, Left Turn on the Red Light edges past Highway Song and the opener to top my preference. Yeah, well, ditto that. So you and I agreed, Richard. It was a close call between Highway Song and Left Turn on the Red Light for me, but. Overall, I think I think Left Turn just edges it. Uh, but we're all agreed on the weaker of the songs on the album. So Run and Hide is at the bottom and Highway Song and Left Turn on Red Light at the top. So there we go. What an absolute pleasure that was. That was um, Blackfoot Strikes, um, very favourably reviewed. And uh, I would dare say it will score very well and figure quite highly in our, in our Hall of Fame. And so on to album two, Crossing the Atlantic. Back in Blighty for a bit of neo-prog rock, if you believe Wikipedia. Don't like that title at all. But what I do like is Marillion and I love Fugazi. And given that he's chosen it, Rich, I guess you do too. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, I love it a lot. It'll be interesting what the scores do when we do script. But I would say that Fugazi I hold closer to my heart than the first album. I chose this, as I said, because of the artwork. I'll give a quick intro to Marillion because I think it's, it's a bit, it's a little relevant for us talking about Fugazi. I mean, they were formed as the, the Silmarillion in 1978 by um, Mike Pointer. In terms of how we get to the lineup that did Fugazi, I'm a Steve Rothery guitar joined in 1979. They then shortened their name to Marillion. Mr. Dick, Mr. Derek Dick, or Fish, joined in 1981. And Peter Avast uh, joined in bass on 82. And that's really when they started to take off as a band. Uh, did a demo for the Friday Rock Show, then signed for EMI, and then, of course, Script for Justice Tear came out in 83. They went out on tour extensively to support Script, and I don't think they'd done much songwriting, and EMI were really pressurising them to come back into the studio to write their next album. Well, the varying stories around around why Mick Pointer left the band, some of them saying that, you know, arguments, some of them saying that um, the band felt he hadn't developed musically enough for them. It would appear that Fish felt it was him that had to tell Mick Pointer that he was no longer in the band that he had formed. I mean, ultimately, after a few Spinal Tap moments with a few drummers, they eventually recruited Ian Mosley. It was recorded in November 1983 through to February 1984, released in March 1984. Production ran ridiculously late, partly because Nick Tauber, who produced the album, essentially had a nervous breakdown whilst the album was was being recorded. The album wasn't released till the 12th of March 1984. I mean, it's considered by quite a few people to be the weakest album of the Fish era. I mean, I, I don't agree. I mean, any opening thoughts on the album itself, Jen? You're right. I am a big Marillion fan. Certainly Fish era Marillion, the first four albums. I find it very difficult to separate all four of them because they are so so very different, so very thoughtful, all four of them. And yeah, I'm a listen, I'm a Buckinghamshire boy and I'm enormously proud of Buckinghamshire's finest band. I've only ever seen them once and that was at Donington in, in 1985 and I can still remember vividly Fish, this towering figure, had the audience, a massive crowd in his hands and that's a tough fact to please especially on a day like that anyway the short answer to your question is i love fugazi (laughs) you too 
I love you. Script for a Jester's Tear is probably one of very few albums that I think I could score 10 for every single track on it. I knew Punch and Judy. I didn't know a lot of the rest of Fugazi. And I think probably the reason that I ignored Fugazi and Misplaced Childhood and Clutching at Straws is that I genuinely felt nothing they could do after script could possibly come close. And Fugazi is not an album that I could conceive scoring 10 on every song, but it's damn close. I have absolutely loved it. I have found it almost impossible to listen to either of the other two albums this week. It's that good. So let's get on to the artwork. It's a gatefold sleeve. Um, It is of a man comatose on a bed. In one hand, he's got a glass of wine spilling on the floor. In the other hand, he's got an opium poppy. He wears a Walkman. On the floor by the bed is a picture of a clown. There's a chameleon on the sofa that's caught hold of a magpie's leg. Uh, the magpie in its beak has got a wedding ring. There's a jack-in-the-box that's got a slashed chest and a bleeding heart. There's a woman's stiletto that's pegging the sheets to the floor. There's an incubus claw coming out of the TV. And there's also a jigsaw of a jester on the floor. But the jigsaw's missing a piece where the jester's heart should be. Phew. I mean, Mark, Mark Wilkerson thought that it, it was overworked. <laughs> it's um, If you love Easter eggs, which I do, that's that's an album cover. No, it's an amazing piece of artwork and probably one of the best pieces of album art you'll ever see anywhere, other than maybe on another three Marillion albums. So, shall we get into the music then, gentlemen? Yeah. So the album starts with assassin. Fisher wrote the lyrics about himself as the assassin, having to uh, fire Mick Pointer. You know, essentially, you know, sings about the fact that friendship is sacrificed, various references to various assassins. He, he struggled a lot, didn't he, Fish, with that whole process. This is an awesome song. Huge ambition in it. Amazing, amazing song. Yeah, I consider myself to be reasonably good with vocabulary. I, I've ha- I've been reaching for the dictionary this week. Yeah. And it makes, you, it makes you think as well, because his lyrics are always built on imagery, aren't they? So... They're not obvious. They're not direct. They're not straightforward. You don't listen to this album and think, oh, yeah, they're, 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 that, that's a guy having a sex with a 32-stone woman. It would certainly sound different if Fish had written about it, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, one day we should come up with the with the lyrics for that, the Marillion lyrics for a whole lot of reason. We're now on to track two, which is uh, Punch and Judy, all about essentially marriage failure. L- Lyrics-wise, probably the most accessible, and it, it is telling a story, but it's still in... Uh, Fish's own inimitable style. You know, curling tongs, mogadons, I've got a headache, baby, don't take so long. He says things that you only think, and you think that, that can't be put into song. You know, whatever happens to morning smiles, whatever happens to wicked wiles, permissive styles, whatever happens to twinkling eyes, hard, fast drives, compliments on unnatural size. It's extraordinary. Punch Judy ends and brings us into track three, which is Jigsaw, which is my personal favourite track on the album. I'm not even. I mean, I'm not even sure I have the words to describe this song. It's it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful song. I mean, there's there's a lot of pain in this. I have to say, this whole album. Forget about your A's, your B's, and your C's. This has been written in the key of melancholy, hasn't it? I mean, it's heartbreaking, sorrowful in 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 many many places, but also quite uplifting. Yeah, there are there are playful moments as well, and not on this track. And Steve Rotherys' guitar solos—they're only ever mournful. 
I mean, beautiful, but but mournful, and it's um, just tugs at your heartstrings all the way through. And I just found that really enchanting, beautiful. Yeah, I think this this was the album where Rothery really started to establish his style because his guitar became the sound of Marillion. I, I know, Steve, that um, I'll preface this by saying I, I hope never to hear it, but you want sugar mice at your funeral, don't you? Um, so you guys can make sure this is played at mine. Jigsaw gives way to Emerald Lies, another song about a slightly difficult relationship, which I think is you know, summed up in uh, the line, I trust you trust in me to mistrust you. This is the good opportunity because of the way the song starts to bring up the third elephant in the room, which is Fish's voice. We come across many singers who aren't classical singers. I don't mean classically trained, I just mean classic rock singers. We've talked earlier about the likes of Geddy Lee and Ozzy Osbourne and many others, of course. Bruce Dickinson challenges me quite often. Fish is not a great singer, Rich, is he, in terms of classical singing, but perfect for the band? Yeah, that's how I think best. You can tell at times he's stretching. For me, it's a bit like Geddy and Rush. It's right for the band. What he lacks in technique and control my goodness he makes up for in emotion and putting the meaning behind his words in the way that he sings them in interviews he describes himself as a writer who can sing not a singer who can write and i think that's true he's a great writer who happens to be able to hold a tune with a very distinctive voice and i think that's also why marillion post night 89 is a different band for me as well because i know that this is up hugely unfair but for me Marillion is fish he knew his limitations as well I loved this quote when he was asked once whether he fancied himself as a singer he said I did after I saw Rod Stewart and the faces on telly Rod was obviously pissed and having a fantastic time I thought that's something I could do and we listened to Emerald Lies I mean this song I think typifies actually how they came together as a band the four musicians on this track are going at it hammer and tongs Fugazi is what, seven tracks long, four on uh, side one, three on side two, and side two starts off with She Chameleon. To my ears, this is a completely different song to the other six on the album. It's structured differently. It sounds very different. And I think I struggle with that. I think yeah, it's probably probably my age. But I just, I don't like change. And I think um, I found it jarred. But actually, I really, really like it. And I love the imagery in it as well. I think yeah, <laughs> we've all been out with a lizard, all of us. It's really interesting what you say. The, the structure of the songs on the album, I, I think it's very difficult to compare structures. They're, they're just so different in everything they do. I think this is absolutely sumptuous. Those opening organ salvos and Ian Mosley's punctuating trum thumps. There's nothing textbook about this at all. It's it's just a brilliant thought process going on. Peace in many parts, as ever. Dark, real theatre to it. And I was suggesting earlier about Fish. He's like a ringmaster, isn't he? And there's theatre to everything that Marillion do. I just think it's sheer genius. <laughs> I think there's so much more mood and atmosphere in the three tracks on side two. So we're in, in the keyboard run. This is straight off The Lamb Lies Down. This is The Cage. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. This was the point at which I started to become more open to the to the track over the week. Really, did get some stick, didn't they, in terms of uh, Genesis? I think it was Grendel that was uh, yes. to be a ripoff of of Supper's Ready, wasn't it? Genesis's manager talking to Fish sometime later said that if he'd heard Grendel, they would have sued the shit out of them. 
Chris said he completely got it. He said they were massive Genesis fans and he understood why it was said. He didn't like it, but he got it. Steve Rothery now says he's a great friend of Steve Hackett and they've been the donkey's years. So. To be fair, though, Steve, I think it took Fish a while to get to the point where he was quite acknowledging of it. No, so I'm, I'm fully signed up, She Chameleon. And that's followed on side two by Incubus. This is Fish's favourite song, favourite Marillion song. Uh, it wouldn't be mine. It's a great song, but it wouldn't be my favourite. I've not got this on vinyl, so I've only ever had it on CD and now Spotify. Because while Fish loved it, he said that they were actually very critical of the production on it, suggesting that the song hadn't actually turned out how they'd wanted. They reckon it was a sequel to the song The Web off of uh, Script for Justice Tear. Basically, this is post-relationship. He still pleasures himself looking at pornographic Polaroids he took of his ex. Then the second half is essentially him seeing his ex and threatening to send the the Polaroids to readers' wives or whatever the equivalent of revenge porn in the 1980s was. So we know what an incubus is, right? An incubus is a spirit that has sex with sleeping women. And the female version of the incubus, I think, is a succubus? Yes, thank Uh, you. And succubi and uh, uh, incubi are rife in mythology and what have you. And apparently, if you sleep with too many incubi or succubi, you go insane. So this is about the insanity of a bad relationship that's based basically on sex. Fucking hell, was this just turned into an episode of QI? <laughs> we're discussing Marillion, mate. So we're at the point in Incubus where he's talking about you can't brush me under the carpet. This is, I've still got those photos. It's very Genesis, very, very nursery crime, very foxtrot, but lovely. The tracks on this, this album, so where there's that light and dark, I mean, this, this just goes so quiet and then builds again to an absolute belting end. I mean, it lifts up another level uh, for this last verse or two and then it steps up again. Fantastic song. And so uh, we come to the final track on the album, the title track, Fugazi. Apparently, um, it stands for fucked up, got ambushed, zipped in. A comment during the Vietnam War, but basically we uh, got ambushed completely and I'm in, I'm, I'm in, a, in a body bag. So yeah, Fish was reading a, a book at the time, Big Vietnam, uh, which is where seed for this uh, song came. That's really interesting because he uses it as a noun in the... <laughs> Do you realise this world is totally Fugazi? Is he saying fucked up? It, it's ba- yeah, that's well, what it basically means. All fucked up. Yeah, okay. gotcha, gotcha. But the current meaning of Fugazi, I think, is fake, which could also be applied here mm. because he talks about the fakeness of London and of the rat race and the, the vanity of life. It could equally mean both, couldn't it? Because if it's faked, it's fucked up. How far are we into the track at the moment? A couple of minutes in, this is when it starts to really pick up and deliver punch after punch after punch. Excuse the pun. This is where you get the most 80s vibe in the whole thing, this sparring match between the the, the, first the keyboards and the keyboards and guitars. It's, it, I mean, it's, a, it's a song of about five different parts, isn't it? But this part is just phenomenal. Fish did comment, he does sound like in this song that he swallowed a thesaurus. Some of the lines in this track, fantastic lines. <sighs> Tough act for bad Steve to follow, isn't it? Do you know what, Steve? Don't worry about it. They've got it covered. Yeah, you thought Highway Song was good. Across the Rainbow is yet. (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait. So we should talk a bit about highs and lows then. That's an impossible ask, isn't it? It's really tricky, isn't it? Yeah. 
I'll go first with a high. I'm going to have to think a bit more about a low, but it's Jigsaw all day long. There is nothing other than extraordinarily good songs on this album. But if I were putting them in order, one to seven, it would probably be Emerald Lies. But I kind of feel grubby saying that. Yeah, I share your grubbiness. It's seven would be... Emerald Lies for me. I, I tell you what, Rich, I adore the title track, but it just there's just the Celtic sing along at the end bit. I just, it just, <laughs> it just loses it for me. And just, just when it's heading for a nine and a half. Yeah, I love the end of this song. <laughs> Absolutely adore the end of this song. Uh, yeah, she, she chameleon gets my gets my thumbs up. That's your strongest song. Oh yeah! Wow! Oh, I adore it. Adore it. Emerald Lies just comes above She Chameleon if I had to rank them one to seven and it's Jigsaw at the, at the top for me. Okay, so as Fugazi fades away slowly, that brings us to the end of Marillion's second studio album. So as we wave a fond farewell to Mr. Fish and Marillion and contemplate how on earth we're ever going to separate out those tracks for scoring purposes, it's time to welcome in another band from European shores, which Steve has brought to the table. And as he said, it's a very tough act to follow Marillion, particularly an album of the calibre that we've just talked about. But I have absolutely no doubt that we've found exactly the right band to do just that, because I think the only way to follow Marillion is to be completely different and to generate conversation about well, we are going to talk about the lyrics. Uh, we're also going to talk about song structures and we're going to talk about tenuous links to other bands. But I'm going to let Steve introduce all of that. Steve, enlighten us. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, now if you want to listen to a band that can follow Marillion, tune in next week. This, however, is Bad Steve Killing the Night. 1985 released on Mausoleum Records. Actually, Mausoleum Records are a Belgian label, and among their highlights was um, Burning the Witches by Warlock, which any self-respecting metal fan will agree was a fine piece of work. So listen, first of all, this is all about album covers. Mark, you might help me out here. How did I come to discover Bad Steve's Killing the Night? It was you, wasn't it? It was. I found, I believe I found this album in Shades. If uh, if you live uh, anywhere other than the UK, that may or may not mean anything to you. So Shades was a tiny, rickety little shop in the, in the basement of a property on Wardour Street. And it was staffed by some absolutely cracking metalheads. And you, what you could do is you could go to the desk and you could say, right, here are the bands I like. What should I be listening to? And they give you a whole load of stuff that you ought to be listening to. I used to go into London and then would spend probably four or five hours in Shades. And one day I went in and I saw the album cover for Bad Steve. And I wasn't joking earlier on in the show when I said that was what Steve looked like in 1985 even down to the the way he wore his jeans and the way he wore his hair it was like it was it was like somebody had got a photograph of steve and gone that's the album cover for this german heavy metal band and i had to buy it so i bought it and i can't remember did i did i buy two copies and give you a copy I you, you bought it for me later as a gift having and i'd already seen you and i looked at it and i thought oh my god i just thought that is that is just brilliant so i mean google image it because I would imagine not many of you will have it on fire. If you do, you're in the privileged minority. There are seven of us who have got this album. And yeah, so it's a picture of me or 
a doppelganger walking in amongst towering tower blocks. He's all hair. I wish I could look like that now. Interestingly, he's wearing an eye patch, which we will talk about later because it seems to be a recurring theme that you have to wear something over your eyes when you play for Bad Steep. But almost as good as the front cover almost is the back cover of Bad Steve's Killing the Knights, where we've got five little head and shoulders of the five members of Bad Steve, who are called Ruby Ruback, F. Fritz Friedrich, Jan Comet. We have the lead singer, Mr. Magoo, Philip Magoo. And then the last one is Aku Becker, which I don't know, just sounds like someone's just spat that out. But that's his name, it's Aku Becker. And we've got five little head and shoulders of them, and they're all topless, and they're all oiled. They're all well-oiled. And you're thinking, this is really unsettling. You talked about unnerving earlier. Now I'm unnerved. I shouldn't be looking at this from Bad Steve. I really shouldn't. So, yeah. I, I I adore this album cover because it just it's just it's not me but it's me and it's brilliant. So I was looking for a list of top German metal bands and seeing you know where they figure in the pantheon and uh, clearly they're not going to get past the likes of Scorpions and Halloween and accept you know the Holy Trinity. I thought yep yeah, I accept that I'll I'll go down I'll wander down the list that's fine and thought yeah Creator fair enough yeah they're not as good as Creator and then we got to um, the Ocean and Necrophagist and they still weren't there. So I thought, no, I'll, I'll give up. They're clearly not a big noise in um, in German music. And this is their one and only album, Killing the Night. I mentioned earlier about three of them being an Accept, slightly tongue-in-cheek. Friedrich, the drummer, bless him, did play on Accept's debut album. Comet, more curiously, joined the band before Restless and Wild, but didn't actually get to play on the record. And Ruback apparently was with them as well, but did nothing. Jan Comet, by the way, is now 58 and uh, went on via a stint playing guitar in the German version of the musical Starlight Express to run his own advertising agency. That, people, is Bad Steve. I've had so much fun with this album this week. I really have. The lyrics are hilarious, and we'll come on to that. And thank you so much for the gift of pointing me towards the live video today, because that has just made my week completely just unbelievable, almost beyond description. I defy Fish himself to describe what was going on in that video. It's just brilliant. Now, what I would say is before we get to the highs and lows, I would still listen to Bad Steve Killing the Night ahead of fucking Tool, Caius, Ingwe Malmbuckingstein. So let's get on and talk about it in a minute. Wise words, my friend, wise words. Richard? I too have really enjoyed listening to this this week. Some really good riffs. So I think, looking at that video, I'm presuming the, the guitarist who's got the best clothes on in the video is Jan Kermit. Comet. Comet. So it is he on the cover. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah. Guitar. He's got a Gibson Explorer guitar. There too is that same guitar on the album cover. So... That with the shiny white trousers and the mankini, it's um, proof beyond doubt that it is Jan on that cover. Wow. First the Fugazi album cover, then this. I mean, you, you are Bergerac. It's, it's phenomenal. Right, should we play this beast? Yeah, let's do that. I'm ready with Bad Steve is coming. Yeah, we're all ready with that one, aren't we? Can I start? Please, can I start? Can I start? Please let's do. Start. Please yeah. do. I love the lyrics of this. <laughs> so, so they... <laughs> The whole lyrics are telling people that they're coming. They're coming to your town, right? They're coming to your town. And then suddenly they're there. There's no build-up. Bad Steve is coming. And now Bad Steve is here, right? And they tell you, now we hear the drums. And it's like the engineers in the little cube going, drums need to be loud now. Drums. Need to... Now we hear the drums. Got to be loud drums. And then give me guitar. So it's all instructions. Yeah. All the lyrics and instructions. And they also tell you they're a hard rock band, which is which is important as well. 
Don't forget yeah, that. Yeah, and I think you know, I think that's really important that you're absolutely clear about what your purpose in life is. <laughs> We're a half rock band, okay? Good. Glad we cleared that up because it was slightly kind of iffy there for a moment. Fish didn't write this, did he? Let's be honest. No, come on and clap your hands. More instructions. Clap your hands, yeah. everybody. Yeah, but but do you know the best the best bit about that line is he, he says, come on and clap your hands, and you're thinking, all right, that's a shit line. What's he going to follow it with it? And then he says, come on and clap your hands. I'll <laughs> 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 it twice. See, give me guitar. And as if by magic, what happens? We get guitars. It's fabulous. Oh, dear. What about the track? What about the music? It's all right. It's quite I mean, it's derivative, isn't it? It's, you know, it's not exactly stuff we've not heard before. No, no. Good riff to start with. I don't dislike it. As a calling card for what they're about, for the one album that they produced, this is a good start. I've, I've got two words that will recur over the next sort of 10 minutes or so, and they are acceptable and inoffensive. Okay, so um, when we're talking about lyrics, I'm not sure we're ever going to top the next song, though, which I think is Light Up My Soul, isn't it? Sure is. Now, they've obviously been digesting Iron Maiden for quite some time, haven't they, with that riff? I heard Scorpion's love drive in this. Just not very much of it, no? <laughs> the, the ringing chords sounds like the verse of love drive. It's, yeah, it's not a bad track, is it? I mean, like most of the tracks on this album, you, you won't remember it for very long. It's not exactly cheery, though, is it? You know, that lyric, because we're probably going to die, so light up yeah. my soul. Do you know what the most soul-destroying thing about this track is? It's only got six likes on YouTube. I mean... <laughs> We ought to say as well that if you are trying to listen to along to this and you've been and you're scouring Spotify, don't it's not there. You'll only find it on YouTube or on vinyl if you own it, obviously, like Steve and I do. I, I think the the problem here is not the music, particularly, although it's it's a it is derivative. It is it's kind of hard rock by numbers, isn't it? But the problem is the vocals, and not just the lead vocals, but the harmonies, because they are all over the shop. And also, bear in mind, boys, we've listened to hundreds of albums that are as average as this. Yep. over the years you know i mean this is only in because of the theme we've chosen for the evening tonight and we know full well it's going to finish way down the lead table but you know most of most of the albums that compare to this by other bands you know we wouldn't even consider we wouldn't even bother banging on about for an evening you know because we're looking for high quality in our quest to fill the hall of fame but every now and again you gotta go for some levity haven't you so the third track on bad steve killing the night is killing the night and it's, um, I have to say, we're only two and a bit tracks into it, and I'm already, um, I'm tiring of Mr. Magoo's voice already. I'm not tiring of it. I'm just fascinated by his pronunciation. <laughs> this, this chugs along, doesn't it? It's, it's just a really solid piece of easy on the air rock. I, I'm surprised they didn't sue, because I, I, I reckon Alan and Miles ripped this off with Black Velvet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's got echoes of that, isn't it? Lots of German bands writing dirty, smutty songs in their second language. And so Killing the Night drifts effortlessly into Running to You. Again, not much to dislike about this, apart from the lyrics, obviously, which are utter shit. And the tune. <laughs> Actually, no, that's a bit unfair. No, it's, it's um, God, here we go again. It's inoffensive yeah, and acceptable. This would be my high point on the album because it's a bit of Euro rock, isn't it? It's got a nice little earwormy hook line. Yeah, the bits in between you can take or leave, they're kind of forgettable, really, aren't they? But it's just got a nice melody. I like it. I really Yeah, like it. well, nothing to dislike about it, as I say. It's got a catchy chorus. Yeah. yeah. All these people with weary eyes, drinking whiskey and telling lies, gonna jump into your eyes. Here I go. I love this. 
I love this. So side one finishes off with inside looking out, which is acceptable and inoffensive. (laughs) Yes, it is both of those things. We're all really just waiting for the next track, aren't we? We are, aren't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm a little bit discomforted by there's a little sinister backing vocal in this track that um, bothers me enormously. Why does it bother you? I'm inside looking out. It's a bit over chuggy, isn't it, really? Could be ever so slightly faster. Yeah, I think that was a lot of the album, really. It's of a sedate pace for the whole lot of it. Yeah, I think the problem with this album is that there, there, there's not a lot of thought has gone into the the songs is there yeah i think what we're looking at here is a bunch of average musicians who've put together an average album that hasn't quite lived up to average in some places but the limit of their ambition has been averageness and and, and also it's easy to sit here and, and slag this thing off but it means something to me you know and 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 you get it don't you it, it, i don't want to over nostalgize if that's a word but um it's a tiny fragment of me even if it's just a silly picture on the front cover you know, it's always part of my musical journey, if, if that doesn't sound too, you know, highfalutin and pompous. I've got a real sense of affection for the album. There are plenty of albums that I own that are in this ballpark that I quite enjoy listening to. Come on, then. Should we do this thing? Yep. I like the night. Shall we kick off side two of Bad Steve's Killing the Night? A word of advice. If, you're gonna, if you've not got the album, and as I say, only seven of us have, then go check out on YouTube the live video for Across the Rainbow, and our silliness will all make sense. So when we were talking about Fugazi, I said that I found the album cover quite unnerving and disturbing. I find the spoken intro to this really disturbing. I'd have a restraining order out immediately if somebody yeah. said to me like that, wouldn't you? And the fact that he looks like a sort of a reject from Spandau Ballet in this video is, um, is is not helping his cause. If you've not seen this video, they're live. I don't know where, but I would they're suggest... Not, they're not live. People. They're on a wall in someone's front garden. It's like the sort of set they throw up in It's a Knockout. And there's too many wonderful things about this video. But one of my highlights is at the 1.37 mark, they pan out. And you're, there's a fella in a suit wandering behind the stage on his way to work or back from his lunch break or something. It, it, it's, it's about, there's, a, there's, a, there's about 100 people out there looking bored. There's raindrops on the camera. And in the midst of it all, you have Mr. Jan Kermet, or Comet, wearing... A Oh, Mark, what's he wearing? Cheese slicer leotard. <laughs> Honestly, it's the sort of thing that could could literally eviscerate you if you pulled it up. <laughs> it is it is just priceless, Kitch. I love it. I love it. And he's got the Bad Steve mask on. It's the whole Bad Steve outfit. I'm not sure if it was actually the promo video. They released this as a single from the album. It starts off with the the camera panning across some lines of runner beans in an allotment. (laughs) (laughs) And in in the background, there's there's a miniature windmill. What a a crazy golf course. (laughs) I mean, it's like, I mean, it's like, it's tapped Stonehenge. I mean, it's it's priceless. Do you know what my favourite moment of the whole video is? It's when they pan back, right? And you can see the bottom of the wall. And then this girl sitting on a chair looking out of her skull. No one. Everyone's just going about their business. No one. You can see about nine people 
one of whom is clapping. And then they did a phenomenal job because when they showed the crowd, there are hundreds of thousands of them. Yeah, it turned into Nebworth. It's a really catchy tune. It's been in my head. I, I laughed at it to begin with, obviously, because of the spoken intro. But as, the more I've listened to it this week, for me, Across the Rainbow has been my version of Mark's Chic Chameleon. And it's climbed and climbed. And it's ended up, I think, my favourite track on this album. Because it, it's made me smile so much. And it's very, very catchy. It, it certainly is that. Well, I'll tell you what, my work is done. That's fantastic. I'm... Uh... If, if, if it's got that kind of response, that's brilliant. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. When when we put these up on the website, I'm going to put up the video as well because it's got to be on there. Yeah, definitely. Should we move uh, on? Yeah, let's move on. So from the comedy gold that was uh, Across the Rainbow to Living on the Front Line, not to be confused with Udo's Living on a Front Line, which is a mighty piece of work. This isn't. Well, this is actually okay. Yeah, it's got a catchy riff. Yeah, and I didn't see the chorus coming either, which is um, almost suggests that they've, you know, done something different. What are we saying? We're saying we like this, are you? It's not bad. It's okay. It's acceptable. Inoffensive. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. Inoffensive and acceptable. I'm slightly reminded of Q5 here. Bad Steve aren't as good as Q5, but it's a very similar approach. I'm thinking Gorky Park. Yeah, bit of Gorky Park in there. There you go. That That's the point at which they're not derivative because obviously they have inspired Gorky Park who came later because Gorky Park were 89, I think, weren't they? Mm. Shall we move on? Okay, so Leather Girl, which... Clearly, the YouTube masses have warmed to. This has got 22 likes and no dislikes. So this is a big number amongst the bad Steve Konya Senti. And yeah, it's okay. Is it acceptable and inoffensive? It's exactly what it is, my friend. It's exactly what it is. What it does do is it plays out rather well. In fact, better than any of the other songs on this album. It has a nice ending. Hmm. It's, it's, it's the lyrics, though, isn't it? The opening lines where she goes down for money with the boys in the band. She's sticky like honey, but I eat out of her hands. If she's sticky like honey, where's she been? I presume that's after she's been with the boys in the band. This might be a good time to talk about the production. (laughs) I think it's fair to say it's done on a shoestring. There's no hint of Bob Rock in this, let me tell you. Because I think with a fuller sound and a different singer, this could have been salvaged. Yeah, it's a good sign off, isn't it? You're absolutely right. Right. And so we close this evening's show with... I I don't really know how to describe this. This is Nightbreaker. Well, I do know how to describe it, but... Would, would shit be the word that you... <laughs> <laughs> when it starts, so this is a kind of slow builder, you think, and I thought immediately they've gone for that kind of accept, wannabe, style, moody, Princess of the Dawn, Winter Dream sign-off, and it's just a crock of shit from then on, so they've missed that target straight away. I don't know. It's this song that has the riff. This is a Black Sabbath riff. So what track is this? Iron Man. It is Iron Man, isn't it? Yeah, they obviously can't play slowly um, <laughs> yeah. because they're yeah. completely out of time. The drummer doesn't know what he's doing. He does these slow fills that are so awful. I mean, it, it, it's it's like I let Mark loose on a drum machine. If you put the album on, you'd check you'd stuck it on at the right speed, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, none of them are in the same tune. That's the absolutely no. interesting about this song yeah they're all playing just different tunes it's a car crash he actually sounds like he's throwing up i mean it's not quite disgustipated without being about the bush this is fucking awful that kind of makes it fun and yeah that's it 
you'd lift the needle off the record before it ended, wouldn't you? Yeah, and to be perfectly honest with you, disgustipated with accepting that that the same would be true of that. There aren't many songs that we've listened to over the last fifteen weeks where I would have stopped the album. Mm. I mean, they're lucky it's at the end because if this had been track one or track two, I just I would just put it back in the sleeve and put it back in the collection, just forgotten about it. Mm. Mm. Okay. Should we do some highs and lows? Well, yes. I think we've agreed on the low. I, I think I yeah. think the polar opposite of Merillion, where we were struggling to find a low. Um, we haven't had that problem here, which is good. I think we also know what Richard's high is, don't we? <laughs> oh, yes. your, your guilty pleasure. Yeah. Me and rainbows, eh? Yeah, that's right, isn't it? It's another bloody rainbow. So is that right? Is that is that it? Yep. Low is like breaking your highs across the ra- rainbow. Okay, well, I'll go next, and we'll, we'll leave Steve to do his last... Nightbreaker obviously is the low because it's um it's um oh what's the word shit that's the word but I think my favourite song on the album is Running to You but I'm with you actually Richard Across the Rainbow I think the reason it's not my favourite track is because it has got some absolutely fucking hideous harmonies on it to the point where you're wincing but it came came a close second steve yeah that's that's the point isn't it because they're all kind of a, of a, of a kind it's really not going to take an awful lot to elevate one track an awful long way above the rest so yeah i'm with you on nightbreaker i think that's dire and because of the really decent end to leather girl that gets my uh, that gets my top marks but what I would say is that all joking aside, well, no, you've got to joke about it. That's been a that's been a blast. Bad Steve killing the night has been a blast. It won't get into our Hall of Fame, but it puts the tin lid on a really good uh, a really good episode, as far as I'm concerned. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so we've uh, we've done the reviews. Uh, we've now tapped in our scores. And Mark, do you want to talk us through the scores for Blackfoot? and strikes yep okay uh, so steve you scored that uh, 7.7 with all the twos richard you scored it seven point all the twos so effectively a 7.2 score to steve 7.7 and i scored it at rounding up to a 7.5 so 7.4 treble eight nine if we're going to be meticulous about it to give an overall album average score of 7.4777 Eight. So, Marillion, Richard. So, for Fugazi, Steve gave it a 7.86, Mark a grand 8.47, and I gave it a, an 8.07. And that for an overall album total of 8.1, then three recurring. Bad Steve, killing the night, rounded off the evening. And as fared as bad as I feared it might. Mark, you gave it 5.9, best part of. Um, Rich 6.1, me 6.2 for, um, well, to be honest, there was a point where I thought it wasn't going to reach the six mark, but um, yeah, 6.07407 for Bad Steve. Okay, so um, I guess we ought to uh, head on over to the Hall of Fame and see where that has um, left these three albums. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Okay, so we're into the Hall of Fame, and can I, it just seems to be the wrong way around. I don't quite know what's going on here, but those who forecast that Bad Steve wouldn't have such a bad night that it would finish beneath the likes of Cuse and Tool and Ingve, um at the end of the evening have been proved wrong because, sadly, killing the night, while as much fun as it was, it is now propping up the Hall of Fame in 45th place out of 45 with a score of 6.07. Not far adrift, but adrift enough. Yeah, what can you say? 
Blackfoot Strikes got in there at uh, number 27 with a 7.47, um, lodged between Bulls to the Wall by Accept and the Ritual's Testament. And we have a new entry into the top 10 um, with Fugazi, 8.13. So one of only 11 albums to burst through the eight barrier. And Fugazi is in ninth spot. Did you see that coming at the start? Uh, yeah, I think I probably did, actually. In fact, I'm, I'm surprised it's not higher. I was pleasantly surprised that you guys liked it so much. I thought that um, you know, you'd be scoring it lower than me and it would do well you know, to get you know, top 20, top 15, maybe. Yeah, and uh, and I think Blackfoot's probably in where it should be. I was surprised at my own score for Bad Steve, actually. But yeah, it is what it is, isn't it? As I say, it's been a lot of fun, but um, it was only ever going to be in the lower echelons, and uh, it's just been the lowest echelon of all. The, the reason why it is, and I scored it lower, actually, it turned out lower than I, I scored either Tool or Kaios. And you know what I think the reason for that is, is that even though I would not play either of those albums ever again, Blues to the Red Sun and Undertow, I think musically they are more accomplished than Bad Steve. In the end, 0.05 of a point separates Killing the Night from Blues to the Red Sun. And I would still prefer to listen to Killing the Night because I think it's a lot more fun. But I think musically, Tall and Coast probably deserve to be above it. Yeah, and if they'd, if they'd had the decency to stop the album at track eight, they wouldn't be at the bottom. It's a fine album, but it had an awful last track that, that pulled it down. Which just goes to reinforce what Steve always says, which is that you can't afford to make a mistake. Yeah, as Judas Priest have found out. Indeed, Epitaph will be their epitaph in this list for that particular album. Okay, so there we go. That's another round done. We're now at 45 in the Hall of Fame. Another uh, 55 to go until we complete the first version of the 100. So Killing the Night is is guaranteed, guaranteed to be there for, I work it out, at 19 weeks it will spend in this list. Who knows? It may spend more. This is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. So that kind of brings this episode of the podcast to an end, the Sheer Art Attack, uh, episode 15. So, uh, yeah, thank you for your company. Uh, we'll be back next week with another three albums to review. And, yeah, if it's been as much fun as this week, we're in for a, we're in for quite a week ahead, aren't we, boys? Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed these three albums. It's been really good fun. Good. All right, well, everyone stay safe, and we'll see you all next week. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.